I very much felt like a, you know, a lone lion out in the, you know, being fended off by wildebeest or something. You know, it was really, I should have been the top of the, the food chain, but I was not winning. The whole experience became something almost like a gothic horror to me. It was contained within 24 hours, and by the time I returned to, to the civilization, it felt like a dream. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today we are going slightly off topic in a podcast about urban issues. We will be talking about distant abandoned places. We're going to visit the polluted town of Chernobyl, the emptied out city of Detroit or the volcanic island of Montserrat. And whether it's due to war, disaster, disease, economic decay, each location has been left to its own devices. And human life has been made almost impossible. We will discuss why we feel so attracted to these strange alien places, what happens when nature is allowed to reclaim its space, and what this means for how we relate to our own environment. Joining us today is Cal Flynn. Hi, Cal. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you going? I'm fine. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're calling in from the Orkney Islands in the north of Scotland. Was it an advantage or a disadvantage to be on a on a quite remote island in the midst of a pandemic? I think definitely an advantage because uh, a few people at the beginning when the when the um, lockdown measures were first coming in um, were sort of laughing at us because we would be completely marooned on the island. But then everyone was stuck within five miles of their own home. So actually, in the end, it turned out not to be much of a drawback at all. So um, it was nice to, I suppose we felt quite safe here. And um, like the the community here is very strong. It's very well-defined because we have the island to mark off who is in and who is out. So I found a really friendly place. Uh, we're quite new here. We've only been living here two years in total. So almost almost three quarters of that now has been in lockdown, but that means that we've we've built really strong networks with people who live very close to us. So in a in a strange way, uh, th- that I suppose has been a uh, a blessing. Um, you you've written an amazing book about what happens when man leaves uh, a place that has been polluted or destroyed by natural violence, um, and what happens next. Do you remember the moment when you thought? Okay, this is what my next book is going to be about. Well, I remember the moment, I suppose, when I first became interested in this as a phenomenon. And that was uh, visiting some different islands, which are just off the west coast of Scotland. They're called the Slate Islands. Uh, the biggest one is called Easdale. Um, and these are very uh, human impacted islands. They were the center of the slate mining industry in the 19th century. And uh, really, there are dozens of very deep quarries dug into the island so it's they're completely hollowed out but um towards the end of the 19th century they were flooded with seawater um during a, a sort of once in a lifetime tidal disaster and then it became uneconomic to keep running these quarries and so the whole industry collapsed almost overnight and these quarries remain on the islands but they're they're full of seawater they're really beautiful 
really unexpectedly beautiful is what I found out when I first went there. They're all sort of strange turquoise colours and the whole island is covered in, in shoots of broken slate. But this is all grown over with bramble and wildflowers and the grasses are beginning to come in and you can see the little holes in the bushes where the small animals and birds are coming in and out. And it really felt like a wild place. And what I hadn't been prepared for, I suppose, was the beauty and that sense of um, being in some kind of wilderness, even though it was so um, post-industrial. And I think that's where the the first flickerings of interest um, that would turn into this book began. Um, I thought a lot about how we um, think of the aesthetics of landscape. And this certainly wasn't a picturesque place. It's not um, not somewhere you would put on a postcard. And yet it was beautiful. And it made me think a lot about how often, you know, when in high fashion, the models that we choose are, are not perhaps the sort of prettiest models. They tend to be reserved for commercial. And these models tend to be somehow exaggerated in some way. Um, and it's these differences um, from the norm that, that marks them apart as a special kind of beauty. And this is kind of how I started thinking of that landscape. Um, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that as well as the aesthetic issue, which I was initially interested in, there was also this question of biodiversity. And actually places like the Slate Islands are often full of unusual creatures, um, especially for invertebrate life, sometimes reptile life, that these places that have almost escaped our attention um, become these specially almost protected habitats for species because they're ugly or because they're perceived somehow to be worthless. And actually they, they become wild and, and maybe some of the wildest places we have in, in really, you know, developed countries and especially in Europe, because we are so densely, um, populated and, and we've, touched, I suppose, every part of the landscape. And so once you start noticing these places, you start to see them everywhere. Um, even in the cities, you know, you see scraps of land or you see old car parks, which are now sort of the, the tarmac is cracking and plants are coming through and um, they're just everywhere really. But I, I hadn't attuned my eyes to it before. And so it was a process to begin with of sort of teaching myself to look harder and to, to think more carefully about what is a valuable piece of landscape that it's not necessarily a pretty garden, but actually it might be, you know, a holdout for, for wildlife in farmland or in a city or, or some urban environment. And in the book, you offer 12 locations all around the world and each of which embodies a different aspects of the process of abandonment of uh, natural reclamation, if you can call it like that. Um, why did you, why did you pick, pick these 12 yeah, that's a good question. I think um, uh, it took me quite a long time to be able to to put this into words, but I suppose each of these places um, somehow emblematizes or symbolizes a different aspect of this abandonment. So to begin with, I look at places where um, I just see the benefit of the absence of people in different ways. Um, for example, if I went to Chernobyl, I became interested in the trade-off between the the I suppose, the negative impacts of radiation and the contamination in the ground and the positive impacts of the absence of people um, and how that can be, a, yes, a, a one does not exactly cancel out the other, but it can become valuable even though it is deeply contaminated and irradiated. Um, in Cyprus, for example, I look at uh, the benefits of war zones in a strange way, not so much that war is positive for 
um, wildlife, but the stalemates that can happen and, and in effect create exclusion zones and no man's lands, they have historically been um, very positive um, and they can form part of the sort of peace agreements afterwards. And so I suppose each of these places has a different story, but more than that, they they symbolize something deeper, a different a different issue that I wanted to explore in depth, because later I would look at um, psychological impacts in two different places. And then I started looking, I suppose, at the the limits of, of natural regrowth towards the end when I was thinking about climate change. And um, that was uh, a jump from, I, I, I went to Montserrat, which is an island in the Caribbean, um, to visit the former capital town, which is called Plymouth. Um, and there, as well as looking at the abandoned town and the volcano there, I looked at the link between volcanoes and supervolcanoes with the climate, and then by extension, our own link with climate change. So I suppose each of these are a, a different strand in my argument. Yeah, and yet I would not call it a book about climate change. No, um, I think I felt I had to deal with climate change. I mean, climate change being probably the biggest way that we are now impacting the world, and this is therefore I'm looking at anthropogenic changes and how. Um, animals respond and adapt and, and plant species too. Um, and so it was very important, I think, to to deal with the aspect of climate change. But um, I see that as only one element of, of this wider argument, which is to do with how nature responds and adapts to to people and how it can recover after after we're gone, whether that's because we've left for several decades or you know, in the, in the case of climate change, we start thinking in terms of deep time. So it might be after we've gone and in the greater sense, you know, after, after humans, um, have, have either left the earth or have become far less dominant, uh, on the planet. So I suppose these are big thoughts towards, towards the end of the book. Let's try to visit some of the places that you describe in the book and that you visited yourself during a research that was two years, I believe. Yes, that's right. Approximately approximately two years. I, I began on this journey in 2017. Um, you start your story in the book on the, on the spoil heaps or bings as they are called, which are made up of waste from the once blooming oil industry in Scotland, West Lothian. I don't know if I pronounce it correctly. Yes, that's why, right. Why do you start your story there? Um, partly because this was uh, one of the easiest journeys I made. So the, the journeys in the book, they take me across three continents um, from including America and in Tanzania. Um, and so partly this was at the beginning of my own personal journey, but also partly because I found that they were a very good example of one of the simplest com concepts that I had to discuss and wanted to sort of lay down the groundwork of very early on in the book. So in that chapter, I look at the Bings as a great example of primary succession, which is the return of plants and uh, sorry, species, but especially plants um, on, I suppose, soil that you might consider raised or ground that you might consider completely bare. There's an equivalent in the natural world, which is um, how um, different species will populate a volcanic island. Um, and so these same processes come into play on uh, man-made sites as well. So you might think of how a car park might slowly become mossed over and trees might grow and so on. And here the bings or the, the spoil heaps are very similar to, I suppose, the volcanic remnants or, or dried areas of lava in as much as they're very nutritionally uh, poor. Um, they're very rocky and 
they began completely sterile, having been superheated and then dumped. In fact, for decades afterwards, there were often small fires as um, they would heat up enormously and, and local people who were climbing on the spoil heaps might get burnt. It was a big sort of scandal for several decades. Um, but now those days are long over and they have indeed become a kind of a form of refugia or a, a local um, um, ecologist described them as island refugia for, for life. And I think that this is also one of the places that the title of the book springs from, this idea of these places as being literal and metaphorical islands. As uh, The concept of the island is very important or, or sort of significant within biology and ecology because it, it gives you a sort of contained area within which you can study. So in these, we're looking at how Things or small islands of abandonment might be recolonized by life. And over decades, um, different forces come into play. It might be birds leaving droppings with seeds, or it might be something called seed rain, which is this really beautiful concept of um, how seeds get sort of swept up into the atmosphere. And when the air currents change, they might sort of rain back down upon the earth. It's this great randomizing force. Um, and this is where many of the seeds that come to grow up into plants on volcanic islands or places like the Bings, um, that's where they come from. And many of those species won't work, they'll land and they're just not suitable at all, but others will. And so you start with a very strange assortment or assemblage of species and over time it sort of grows and becomes more complex and, and interesting and strange. You know, you often get very weird mixes of species that um, you might not see in the surrounding area. So at the top of the Bings, you get a sort of subarctic type landscape, which is more similar, I suppose, to what you might find in the Cairngorms, which are the mountain range here, um, and far less like the the farmland that surrounds them. And partly that's because they suit that low nutrient soil. And partly it's just, that's what happened to land there. And I think that that sort of random process is, is very interesting and very creative. You also, later on in the book, you travel to Estonia, to the former site of a, of a collective farm. And um, I thought it was a very interesting chapter. I, you write, when in 1999 the Soviet Union disintegrated, it caused one of the biggest revolutions in land use the world has ever seen. It's a different story than what you just described, but can you maybe describe what happened there since? Yes, absolutely. In uh, Estonia... Uh, and in all parts of the former Soviet Union, um, they saw a huge change in land use because this collective farming or sometimes state-owned farms um, were often separated. Um, and in Estonia, what they did was try to track down the former owners or their descendants and, and give the farms back. Now, so many years had passed since the farms had been taken from the former owners that often the new owners either couldn't be tracked down or they did not want to farm. And so lots of this land has been left, I suppose, in, in a weird state of limbo. Um, but of course, in the intervening period, this uh, process of succession has been at work. So um, I suppose this is the next step after after the primary succession I discussed. This is secondary succession. It starts when there is already soil. These are old fields um, and Slowly but surely, forests have been growing up in these fields, not only in Estonia, but across the former Soviet Union, and on a really huge scale. Um, so 
I used this as an example of forest regrowth or natural forest regrowth, which is happening in many places around the world, especially developed countries, which saw a lot of deforestation, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but due to urbanization or more intensive farming, some of the more mar marginal farmland has been left. Uh, this is less valuable land and, and oftentimes people just sell up or, or can't even sell and they head to the city to make new lives because new generations don't want to farm them. Um, and then we see forests grow up on, on enormous scales. And forest regrowth is, I think, going to be very important when it comes to thinking about climate and especially carbon sequestration. Um, we talk a lot about planting forests to store carbon, but actually it's often much better to allow the forests to regrow by themselves because a forest is not only trees, it is trees plus understory species plus um, all sorts of small plants and in, in, you know, on the bottom layer. Um, altogether, this adds up to a great deal more carbon than we might have in a tree plantation where we have just thrown small trees into the ground. Um, I think this is going to be very important, just partly just standing back and allowing things to happen. So often I think we feel that we need to interfere with the land that we see around us. And I suppose in my book, one of the overwhelming arguments I found myself making was simply the value of, of handing over control at some points. And especially when we see the benefits of these enormous areas of regrown forest and the biodiversity contained within and how much richer they can be compared to planted or plantations of trees. The book, the book is obviously about sort of how, how, how uh, mankind and nature interact. And, and during the course of reading the book, I was thinking to myself, while this is a relationship often framed as a as a fight or or a struggle or or parasitism or a, a, a sort of hostile frame, uh, in your book it sort of looked like more like a dance. Uh, what kind of relationship would you, how would you call the relationship between between, between nature and and mankind? Yes, I think a dance is a wonderful way of thinking about it. I mean. Uh one of the times when I began to think of it in that way was actually during um, the strictest period of lockdown around the world when um, there were lots of strange reports on social media of animals popping up in places that they were somehow unexpected. For example, kangaroos running through, uh, I think it was the city centre of Adelaide or jaguars in Santiago and these dolphins which turned out not to be in Venice. Um, and I think when people dug into them, these cases were... I don't know, pretty pretty marginal. Um, but what they did sort of prove, quite often the case was that these species were already somehow living on the margins of human settlement already. You know, it's not uncommon that there are these sort of scouting jaguars moving through suburban streets or, for example, wolves in mainland Europe. You know, they have been spreading by themselves um, over the last sort of couple of decades and and you will see them you know lurking in people's gardens they're they're exploring constantly and then if they come across a, a strong human presence they'll retreat and so I think a dance is a very good way to think about it these are the forces by which animals um, do come to recolonize places where they have been banished from they have processes by which they explore and maybe they make new territories and so on so it's a constant expression of territory and 
sometimes that's pulled back again by humans because we often react badly to to wildlife impinging on our ground because we have a very strong sense of territory as well. And so the boundaries of what might be considered human territory or human owned are constantly shifting and changing according to to our presence. And so I guess I became more and more interested in places that we had somehow surrendered territory for one reason or another. And using the metaphor of a dance, uh, this also implies sort of that you leave judgment or a normative standpoint out of it, while most of the times people tend to feel sympathy for nature and and, and call humans the bad party inflicting a lot of uh, harm on nature. Was it hard for you to keep this this simple judgment out of the book and out of your analysis? You know, that's a really interesting question because uh, while I've been writing this book, I've realized that I have unthinkingly been making a lot of moral judgments um, of the natural world and the way that we deal with the natural world all my life. Um, I especially came into contact with this in the chapter where I talk about novel ecosystems or invasive species. This is where I when I went to Tanzania to look at um, an abandoned botanical garden where the many of the tree species planted there had sort of burst burst their banks or climbed over the walls and started spreading through the forest. It made me think more widely about um, the way that we judge other species as somehow being um, positive or negative. And usually we have very negative feelings towards the species that have benefited from human presence. So these might be rats or pigeons or these kind of um, ubiquitous species that we see around a lot. Um, these are actually the, the animals that have adapted the best to human presence. And yet we sort of um, decide that we hate them and 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 feel very negative towards them. Um, so I suppose I've been thinking a lot about these moral judgments, not only in that context, but in other contexts. Um, and trying trying to learn to look afresh at things. Um, I think it's very difficult to completely let things go. Um, but the more the more I think about many of the issues at the heart of our relationship with nature, that might be, you know, population control that's culling or, or, or killing other species or, or digging them up, or whether that's, you know, planting wildlife gardens, you know, to, to try and encourage specific species. You start thinking about the species that we're sort of turning away from. It, it is a little bit dizzying because you start questioning everything. Um, but I do think it's it's helpful to think about conservation in terms of ethics because um, so many of the so many of the things that we do in conservation are essentially very interventionist, um, and that's okay if 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 we accept that that's what we're doing and we have goals and plans and so on. But I think it is very good to to think very hard about what our goals and plans are, and you know, are they truly for the advantage of nature or are they to help us feel like we're doing something or, you know, all of these things. I think um, it's important to to weigh them up because they are a very, you know, conservation is a, is a significant way in which we deal with the natural world now and it's done on a very large scale. So we need to make sure that we have our values in the right place. Of all the places you visited, what moved you most and what upon your return uh, led to the most most told stories to friends and families or the, the heaviest anecdotes? Actually, I think many of the stories that I've been telling time and time again are from the chapters where I have um, strong interactions with the people who live in these places. Um, 
one of the things that most surprised me about writing Islands of Abandonment and going to so many of these um, abandoned places are that actually it's very rare that you will find a place that is truly empty of humans. There are often um, people living or visiting these places for one reason or another. Sometimes it's scientists studying these places because they're so rare. Um, other times it might be people who have chosen to to leave society for one reason or another. It might be because they have no alternative or it might be because they like um, abandoned or ruined places. So I suppose one of the places that I like your, like, your, like yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So you have something in common with people you meet there, right? But you can't always put your finger on what it is, like what's drawn you there. Mm. Um, so in Patterson, New Jersey, there was the burnt out um, factories. So there's a very large complex of um, abandoned, ruined factories at the heart of the city. Um, and I thought it was interesting to look at why people were there. Sometimes it was because they were homeless. And especially in America, there is not a, I suppose, a, a strong social safety net. And so there are people, you know, sort of forced to to, to find places to live and, and had sort of constructed strange dwellings out of um, what had formerly been sort of storerooms or, or broken down engine rooms and so on. Um, and meeting people there, I think that was quite, um, it was quite an unsettling place to visit because um, it's not so much that I, I was unaware of homelessness or addiction, but it was partly this sense that some people um, were also attracted to it as well. And so it's that sense of abandoned places as both attracting and repelling us. I think often in equal measure, or sometimes that can be off. I, I spoke to a a man there who who chooses to hang out there, who'd met his girlfriend there. He said he found a community in this sort of dystopian environment. And he loved that place, you know, and um, he felt that it was a psychological need of his to sort of somehow escape the pressures of the outside world and and meet people who were living outside of, of normal society. And that was very similar to the picture that I found in Slab City, which is a really extreme example of this. Um, this is in America, in California, um, an abandoned military base in the desert and um, people there it's it's got I think the best way I've found of describing it is it has the aesthetic of Mad Max you know it's like um, all sorts of trash built into strange um, houses or or shacks or sometimes really incredible works of art um, and, and people choose to live there in an anarchic community um, which is sometimes tied quite tightly together by sort of joint events, but also quite loose. People come in and out and um, people are choosing to live there in extreme conditions, often in quite socially extreme conditions, but um, they find that it gives them a sense of freedom they don't find anywhere else. And I think that these are the places that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, that we all, I think, have a sort of yearning towards being able to live in a an extremely free way. You can be exactly who you are in this very, you know, it's, it's sort of ultimate liberty in a sense in, in places like this, but it's also frightening. And after I stayed in Slab City for a couple of days, I was very relieved to be able to leave. You know, you don't always feel safe and um, the the conditions were were difficult and there's a lot of drugs and violence around and so on. And so it's, you have to find your own place on the spectrum and um, I think a lot of us find that we're more frightened of it than than we were prepared to be. 
you also visited the city of Detroit, which is well known to a lot of people as a city that has been in terminal decline for over 70 years. And you use an interesting term there, uh, blight, to describe the urban decay. Can you maybe tell a little bit about what what the effects are of describing the situation there with this term? Yes, absolutely. So in, in Detroit and in America more generally, I suppose in American English, there's this term blight, which I think uh, in the UK and maybe where you are, we might more readily call it urban decay. Um, but they use this image, which is based on crop science of um, a dying off of um, plants. And it has this sense of being almost like an extra presence in the city with you. Um, blight has its physical aspect, which is the, the ruination and dereliction of houses, but it also has been given this sort of social or, or moral sense of decay as well. And the idea is that blight can spread through a neighborhood. You know, it is actually um, noted that if you live on a street with abandoned buildings on it, your own house will lose value. You're also more likely to be the victim of crime. Um, and there are also psychological aspects that I, I, I waved towards earlier, which is uh, you tend to be more fearful of living in that area. And I think that to that extent, certainly the presence of lots of abandoned buildings on the street can sort of hasten its increasing abandonment. And so in Detroit, for a long time, people talked about blighted neighborhoods and how neighborhoods or streets might sort of cross some kind of precipice after which they might not be saved. And the way that they would respond to this would be to knock down these derelict buildings or these abandoned buildings, um, partly because um, they were often used as a sort of infrastructure for crime. You know, there might be people hiding out there or, or prostitution or drug deals taking place inside these buildings, but also for this sort of visual impact of these buildings being on the street. Um, and so now if you visit Detroit, there are whole areas um, in the center of Detroit, which are really open grassland, um, sometimes whole streets where there are no buildings left at all. Um, and... That's it's, it's sort of interesting to me, I suppose, the, the way that that metaphor took on a life of its own. Um, I found a, a similar way of thinking in, in how people talk about Glasgow, which is a post-industrial city or not entirely post-industrial city in the west coast of Scotland, which um, it's sort of notable for its poor health outcomes and it had for a long time high levels of crime, although that's much better now. And uh, people would sort of point towards this third presence in the in the city that was causing all of these issues and they called it the Glasgow effect. But I think it was a very similar concept to, to this idea of blight. Somehow something had gone wrong and it almost had a life of its own. Um, but the more time I spent in Detroit and the more people I spoke to, the more I realized that, um, you know, that you can be blinded by thinking in metaphors and, and the way that um, these streets or suburbs might be saved was often from within. Um, so, in Detroit, there have been a great number of amazing um, sort of civil projects done by local people. So I spoke to a man who um, had taken it upon himself to organize people to go out with lawnmowers and cut the grass in these huge areas of what they call urban prairie, um, which is a shame from an environmental perspective, but from a 
uh, city perspective, you know, when it, it makes people feel a lot safer, they feel like the streets are cared for, and then that affects people's behavior. Um, so that's very interesting, the way that the, the physical environment of a city really does impact on, on the psychological landscape of those who live in it. Um, and I spoke to a woman who'd sort of been taking care of neighboring houses around her as the rest of the street was sort of going under. And she was desperately trying to keep them looking lived in like there were people present because it was that sort of absence of people almost magnetized, you know, ill forces. Um, and then one day, somebody discovered that this building next to her had been empty and they broke in and and it became wrecked very quickly. And so she was almost holding back the sense of blight as a force. But um, I do think that the way that people respond to it by, by calling this place home and sort of refusing to leave can in many ways be its savior. And I think that that's really heartening. And I found in Detroit, especially because it's on such an enormous scale, um, I find these stories incredibly inspiring. Um, you know, a lot has been made of Detroit's um, sort of the rejuvenation of Detroit. And I think that that is very localized. But at the same time where that is taking place, it is a amazing um, phenomenon and can only be applauded. So uh, that's all down to the people of Detroit. It's funny that uh, in an interview about abandoned places, we've been talking most of the time about places that are not totally abandoned. We've been talking about the people that are still there. One of the locations described in your book that is truly deserted is Chernobyl. And I want to discuss with you the nature of the attraction a place like this has on us. Because there is destruction there, there's death, but there is also beauty or or for lack of a better word, the sublime. What is it, you think? I think that word sublime that you use there is really key. Um, and I think it comes to symbolize uh, to me, but I think to other people too, this sense of something huge and not human and separate from ourselves. And I think that this is what we seek out when we... Um, climb a high mountain and we look out across the world, we're looking for an experience of the sublime. And I think that this is one of the, one of the things that attracts me to abandoned places is, is seeking out the same sense of um, communion with some kind of sublime. And this is looking to wild places and in abandoned sites, often the most um, affecting ones or or somehow beautiful ones are the ones that are done on a large scale. Um, you find often with the people who are involved in the subculture of urban exploring, they often go to um, enormous former castles or they go to Victorian sewer systems or things where you get this huge sense of expanse. Um, and then in front of you, you see not only this great and beautiful space, but you also see wild nature, and you also have this sense of time's passing very visually encapsulated in, in front of you. This sense of human interests as being temporary, as, you know, this, this idea that one day all this must pass. And I think that that is partly why abandoned places really affect us. They make us feel small, but in a good way. They make us feel like we are part of something enormous and yet wholly apart from it. And that there are great forces that act 
um, upon the world when we are not there to see it. At the end of the book, you write about the desert island of Swona in northern Scotland, and it's a really uh, it's a, it's 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 quite an eerie place. It's 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 full of cattle that was abandoned there in the 1970s, and you're there all alone. What did this place tell you? And what kind of insights did you get there? Uh, also, a little bit about what it means to be wild. Absolutely. I mean, I talked there a little bit about the importance of solitude or being solitary and in, in opening your mind to things. But I, I found in Swano, I think maybe I hit the the maximum of how solitary one can be comfortably. Um, so I was dropped off in this island, which is between the Orkney Islands, which is where I live, and Scotland. It's uh, an abandoned island, one of two abandoned islands. Um, it has been abandoned since the late 1970s, at which point the brother and sister who lived there um, left the island, leaving their cattle. They just opened the gate and allowed the cattle to graze freely on the small island while they were away, anticipating they would return. They uh, never did return, and these cattle have now passed uh, 10, decades, 10 generations or so since they were first abandoned. So they're truly in some senses wild, other people would, would describe them as feral. So they were the reason that I first went to the island. I was interested in this sense of when something that has been domesticated might become wild once more. Um, but what I found on the island was um, the extreme experience of, of being alone um, and surrounded by other creatures. And so this very much felt like an island that was no longer human territory. Um, it w has become colonies for many different types of breeding seabirds. So I went there in um, the breeding season because I thought it would be wonderful to see this island full of life. Uh, and it certainly was full of life, but it was not happy to see me. And it was a very uh, stressful experience, which is quite funny because I, I, I did not think that these creatures were, were truly dangerous. I didn't think I would come to to harm, even the cattle, they can charge, um, you can avoid. And, and certainly the, the birds that tend to live in, live in the UK are not, generally speaking, harmful. But they were so incensed by my presence that they were extremely sort of enraged. Um, I felt myself harassed by birds constantly on the island. I accidentally walked into an Arctic tern colony and they are quite vicious and sort of scratched my arms and shrieked and uh, flew at my head. So I kept banging into the territory of other animals and having to retreat. You know, I very much felt like a, you know, a lone lion out in the, you know, being fended off by wildebeest or something. You know, it was really, I should have been the top of the, the food chain, but I was not winning. And so I, I found myself in this island um, watching the castle, watching the birds, watching the seals, um, feeling very alone and also feeling rather frightened in this um, abandoned house where I'd been told to spend the night. Um, it had been suggested to me by the boatman as he dropped off, dropped me off at the, the pier saying he'd see me the next day that I should look out for an orange tent that had been um, erected in the top floor of the house by unknown people. And uh, this image really sort of haunted me, this idea of someone else possibly being on the island at some unknown time. I did not know whether they were there. And I realized that I was not so much scared of being alone exactly as scared of being alone with someone and, and not knowing what their intentions were. I never did find the person, but I did find footprints around the island. And the whole experience became something almost like a gothic horror to me. It was contained within 24 hours. And by the time I returned to, to civilization, it felt like a dream. But 
I found it impossible to sleep. I also found it almost uh, impossible to eat while I was there. Everything was on edge, you know. I felt very um, frightened um, in a way that is difficult now for me to sort of truly relate to. And I'm, I'm quite pleased that people have responded to this chapter in the way that they have, because I was very worried that people would laugh at me and being a terrible coward. But I think other people can relate to this, you know, this sense of when you're alone, really, you're really attuned. Um, I work a lot with horses. And when you take out horses alone, they're almost like different animals. They're, they're paranoid, they're jumping at everything. And um, they can be very difficult to deal with. And I, I really noticed that in myself, you know, this sense that we are social animals, and actually, we don't function terribly well when we're, we're truly alone. But was it was it being alone? Was it the, 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 the realizing that you are not on top of the food chain, not on that place uh, in time? What was it? If you try to understand what made you so 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 fearful and full of panic at the moment? I think we draw a lot of our courage from routine and also from the people around us. You know, there is a a sort of norm if you go out in the street and other people are looking frightened. I think we all experienced this at the beginning of the coronavirus, uh, the, the COVID crisis, um, that sense of fear almost stalking the streets. I think we can draw fear and panic from other people, but we can also draw strength from them. And in their absence, you have no social cues to draw from. And so I think you can very easily, you can be very high and then very low. Um, you have no self-writing mechanism from having someone around you. But also I think that the I don't know if it's this is circular argument, but many of the things that um, we might have in a, a frightening book or a frightening film um, were present on this island. And I think that our pop culture has zoned in really well on the things that frighten a human and that by studying, you know, what makes a horror movie, you know, often it's people alone or it's they're moving quietly or they're in the dark or they find traces of something, but they don't see the you know, the, the horrifying creature itself, you know, the power of suggestion is very strong in humans, especially if you sort of press our buttons. And um, I think there's a, a lot we can learn from, from what frightens us. And certainly many of those things were present on the island that I hadn't been expecting to, to be so potent and so powerful and have such a, have such a frightening impact on, on me as a person, even though rationally I knew that I was rather safe. I have a simple question. Uh, do you like people? And did you grow to like people more or less during the course of writing this book? Yes, I do like people. And I think... Um, so there's a, a way of thinking in sort of, I think, more extreme ends of the environmental movement, which is a very uh, um, anti-human um, So this is the the sense that perhaps the world would be better off without us. Uh, and I think that this is a very seductive way of thinking. Um, and I think I, I've been guilty in the past of sort of lazily thinking it myself too. You know, it's, um, I don't think it's a very helpful way of thinking because I don't see how we can see this through to any, any conclusion, you know, you can, you can sort of believe it, but, you know, should we as a species be expected to sort of wipe ourselves out? I don't think you can expect that of any species. It doesn't make evolutionary sense. I don't think we have that capacity within us, you know, as a population. So I don't think that's a helpful way of thinking. Uh, but um, I guess I became a lot more, I began to entertain this idea of humans as part of nature um, much more seriously. Um, I suppose the dance that we were speaking of earlier, the sense that we sort of give and take and that 
my sense is that where we retreat, I don't think we should force people to to move from areas. You know, here in the in the Highlands of Scotland, we have a, a history of the clearances of people um, due to economic reasons in the 18th and 19th century. And that's caused a really long shadow on the culture here. We call it the Highland clearances. So I would never um, argue for that, I think, because so often these big moves against uh, excluding people from areas. I mean, we, we saw this to some extent in the national parks in America when Native Americans were moved from traditional lands to make them sort of special and, and you know, free of people. Um, so I don't think I would ever argue for that. I think I'm more attracted to this idea of where we have um, chosen to leave land because it is less valuable to us. And actually, this is a lot of land, actually, when it comes down to it. And if that could be a sort of painful handover and we can somehow protect the land that um, people, for example, former farmland that nobody wants to farm anymore, if we can um, protect that land as it comes up or, uh, you know, f- formal, former forestry that has regrown because it has lost its value, um, these might become very valuable environmentally later on. And I think it would be great if we could somehow recognize that and protect them better. I don't think we should take land off people, but certainly once people have um, willingly given it up, that might be a great opportunity for us to to protect that land. And what would protection mean in this respect? Would it mean creating exclusion zones to let nature rebounds by itself? Is it nature's resilience that you want to enforce there or would it be something else? I think something looser than an exclusion zone. I don't think I don't think we need to have um, strict exclusion zones. Although in places, you know, um, actually it's interesting in, in Russia, they have um, the very strictest type of nature reserve where people really aren't allowed in. You have sort of varying levels of strength of protections for nature. Uh, from my point of view, um, I don't mind so much about excluding um, people entirely. In fact, in many of the places that I was looking at, um, sort of loose interaction between local people and and these areas actually would turn out for one reason or another to be um, strangely beneficial. Disturbed landscapes are often very biodiverse. Um, You find these brownfield sites where there's sort of uh, teenagers roaming around setting small fires. You know, these have um, ecological consequences that are not wholly negative. Um, so from my point of view, this is quite a long way from having a sort of government policy, but I do think um, it's more preventing people from bulldozing what has grown up and a recognition of the value of these places beyond the the the, the picturesque. Um, so certainly in the UK, and I'm sure you have similar rules, um, we have what's called a green belt around many of our towns and cities, which is not allowed to be developed. Um, so farmland is often the main um, constituent of, of this green belt. Um, but actually intensively managed farmland is not very useful ecologically, especially for um, wild creatures. It's, it's very intensively managed. Um, and these like brownfield sites that don't look so appealing often are very valuable. And it's only in sort of the recent decade or so that that people have managed to to survey these people, these places, and, and really understand how valuable they are. You know, th- this way of thinking actually began in, in Berlin after the war. Um, uh, Ingo Kvarik, although I might be pronouncing his name wrong, he he introduced this idea of there being like four different types of nature, and the fourth being um, 
it was like self self-willed nature. You know, this uh, this the fourth kind of nature is exactly the kind of nature that you find in these um, abandoned sites. It's they don't need propping up by humans. They're not gardens, um, and these are valuable and really a kind of wilderness in themselves. And um, I suppose that's what I want. I want people to to recognize the value of these places and not to be building houses and roads over them just as much as we try to protect woodlands and fields. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Farita Barki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio and graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe to our podcast and check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.